This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 407, interview with Chloe Malas about her grandfather's book, Luck of the Draw. Originally published more than 20 years ago, Frank Murphy's book about his time with the 100th Bomb Group and then as a POW until the end of the war, Chloe and her mother have had the book republished as Frank Murphy will be in the upcoming Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg series, Masters of the Air to be released sometime later this year. Chloe, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm the one who's excited. Let's not get into a contest about who's more excited, but I think we all know who would win. Um, if, if I remember, before we jump into this, if I remember correctly in my research, you have family and or roots in Atlanta. Yes. Yes, I do. So I was born in Atlanta, um, but my mom and my mom's entire side of the family, we are like (laughs) multi-generational Atlanteans. So definitely. So yes, deep roots down there. Okay. The reason I'm asking is because I recently took a trip to Texas. So I, when I was coming back, uh, I decided I've never been to Atlanta before. So I stopped and stayed a couple of days in Atlanta. One, the older section of Atlanta with those homes, absolutely gorgeous. I love the vibes they give off. Just kind of that old world, you know, quiet poshness. I, I just loved all those houses I saw. But more importantly, I went to the Atlanta History Center. I know you've got a whole bunch of uh, museums there, but the Atlanta History Center was amazing. And the Cyclorama, the big giant round room with the uh, 49-foot walls, painted perspective, all that stuff, that was absolutely amazing. I encourage everybody who's in the area at the Atlanta History Center to go check out the Cyclorama. And of course, most people are going, Ray, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> have, 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 
have you seen it or when's the last time you've probably been there or I'm just curious. Yes. yes. So I have been there. Um, the last time I was there, I was listening to Don Miller, the author of Masters of the Air speak. And it was kind of the night that all my my entire journey sort of kicked off, actually. Um, wow. I would say that was like eight years ago. Um, right. And I am speaking there uh, and I will be speaking there in early March. So if people wow. are in the Atlanta area, I'm going to be there speaking. So with my mom. That's incredible. That might be another trip that I have to take down even further down south. I'm in central Virginia. But for 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 most people who don't know, think of someone in the early 1800s trying to come up with VR technology. Just can't quite make it yet. But what they can do is they can paint with perspective and make things look further away and all the stuff. So, so just picture a giant round room, walls 49 feet high with painted scenes and this one happens to be the uh, the battle of atlanta uh and, and you literally do feel like you're outside uh your senses are tricked because of the light because of the the uh the the painting the 3d sculptures they have at the bottom anyway cyclorama check it out there's only two in this country one's in uh for the Gettysburg Battle and the other one's the city of Atlanta, the Battle of Atlanta. So anyways, I just saw that and it just made me think of you when I saw uh, your family has those connections to uh, to Atlanta. So let, let's jump into this. Like I said, I'm very excited to have you on the show because I've got your grandfather's book. I read it. It was amazing. And now I fi- find out that his story is going to be a part of a larger story uh, produced by two guys. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before. They're kind of new to this. I think it's uh, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. And I'm just like, I am so jealous. That is amazing. (laughs) I can only imagine what you and your family's reaction was to hearing that kind of news. I mean, first of all, I had heard rumblings for years. I mean, we are going back. Mm -hmm. Over a decade, you guys, or should I say y'all. And (laughs) I mean, we knew that Don Miller's book was optioned by Tom Hanks's production company, Playtone, by Spielberg's production company, Amblin. But that was kind of it. Nobody knew where it was going to be. We thought it was going to be HBO. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. now it's Apple, which is amazing. Um, And I never could have imagined that my grandfather would be portrayed. I mean, look, he's not the star of this thing. I'm just thrilled <laughs> that he's a part of it. He is Absolutely. a supporting character and it's just wild. I wish that my grandfather was here. I mean, I literally went to the set and may I say, it's mm. not just a set. They are massive sets in the English countryside. I went at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic wow. with a bunch of my Southern family in tow, <laughs> like snapping pictures like a bunch of tourists and these sets were so big that they were over an hour apart from each other so I couldn't go to two of the many sets because they were just so far away from each other that's incredible because uh probably a year ago I had the producer of Midway on here and I'm like if you ever make another film just call me I'll carry your bags I'll drive your car or whatever I mean I can only imagine what it was probably to a degree, like being submerged back into that earlier period of history because they they try so hard to make it look authentic. I mean, down to the snow on the ground um, that were like these little bits of paper and it looked so real. And this was Mm -hmm. in front of the prison camps that they had recreated, which... Mind you, I walked through. I walked through the barracks of these 
uh, of the prison camps of Stalag Luf Three, and it was unbelievable. The attention to detail of like the matches and the cigarette butts in there, and what they had oh, on the walls and the typewriters and everything. It was so surreal. I mean, you right. literally talk about being transported in time. And these people are so talented. I mean, like it's the best of the business. That, yeah. that has gone into making Ma- Masters of the Year. I am so excited for everybody to see it on TV this fall. We're, we're we're getting closer, you guys. We're getting closer. Oh, no, that that's exciting. I imagine you probably took a couple thousand photos. Just go ahead and send those to me right now. That'll be okay, fine. Yes. I'll keep, yeah. Just <laughs> no, don't tell see, Apple. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, but I, I can't help but imagine it's books like your grandfather's because he had so much detail about what his life was like, what it was like in the prison camp. And we're going to get all to that. that. That probably helped them recreate this very detailed world. And so, again, that's just one of the many reasons uh, people like your grandfather's books. We We need those stories. So if I could get you to, let's let's go ahead and jump into this. If I could get you to introduce your grandfather to us, what was he like? Was he his the average kid before the war? What's, what's going on with his world before Pearl Harbor? So my grandfather, Frank Murphy, uh, mm-hmm. grew up in a very, uh, you know, upper class, middle, upper middle class family, uh, right. right in the center of Atlanta, close to Emory University, where he ended up going to college. He mm. was the youngest of three boys. So he was the baby. And he just had the most mild mannered disposition never raised his voice, easygoing, um, happy person. And he was very smart, a great writer, really good at sports. He was the captain of the football team. Um, He was good at music. I know he's almost like the kind of guy you just, you're like, oh, you're good at everything, right? (laughs) And you're nice and you're cute. Come on, what's wrong with you? So Give me me one flaw. Just, just one. I... I can't honestly, I know it sounds silly to say this, but I'm telling you, I could name flaws about many of my family members and myself, but up until his death, I never could find something wrong with him. And I know that sounds cheesy, but that's the reason why I'm doing this and why I'm trying to promote his book that he worked for so many years on because he was such a good guy. Um, And, you know, he enlisted because he had this love of our country. I mean, this was back at a time where, where talk about just pride, you know, and, and he writes right. about that in the book, you know, where he spent his childhood with his grandfather, taking him over to visit with the Confederate soldiers that were still alive in the Atlanta area. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, I, maybe in a way it was all romant- romanticized war, right. but just a great guy, good at school, never a problem child, you know, just right. an easygoing person. No, that's great. And I, and I want the listeners to, I'm glad you said that because I want the listeners to remember soft-spoken Southern gentleman, mild-mannered. Because at the end, yeah, um, after he goes through hell and back, um, he's going to have some jokes about that where he gets a little off color. And I think you said, or he said in the book, that was the only time he ever used uh, that kind of language. But but we'll get to that. So, so the war comes to America. And now, He's going to be like a lot of people. He's going to want to, you know, defend his country. Was there something that happens before the war that had him interested in aviation, or was that just the the direction or how he wanted to contribute to the war effort? I mean, look, he always loved airplanes, and mm-hmm. he writes in the book 
about, you know, when he was growing up and, you know, seeing at different moments in time, you know, uh, going down to airfields and having right. family members of his introduce him to aviation in that way. Um, and, you know, he was at home at dinner when his father heard on the radio about the Pearl Harbor attacks. And he right. knew that he would soon get into the war, um, you know, before the mm. draft had really been reinstated. And, you know, he always knew that he wanted to fight for his country one day if he had to. He wanted to go uh, into the Air Force. Um, and he had flown Piper Cubs solo at flight instruction school in Atlanta. And he knew he wanted to be a pilot, you know? Right. So um, he decided two weeks after Pearl Harbor to join to ensure his ability to get the job that he wanted. Um, uh. And so that he, he very much wanted to be a pilot and sure. his eyesight. Okay. Oh, you know what? Maybe that's the flaw, right? He didn't have great eyesight. <laughs> that's the one there thing you, you found. <laughs> no, that's I, it, I, actually. That's I it. Just, I just read that book. He, he was going for his physical exam. They're having to turn people away. So they're really trying to get these people in. And I think he, he, he wasn't colorblind. He had 20-20 vision, but I think it was depth perception or something along those lines. That yeah. the, they said, yeah, you're going to have to, we're, we need you, but just know that that's a thing. And, and I remember in the book, he said something like, I was so crestfallen when they told me that, that I was afraid they were going to kick me out. The look on his face, he thinks alone, had the doctor go, you know what? That's fine. Let him, let him through. You know, and, and, and America needed pilots and they needed crews. Um, so I, I, when you reminded me of that, it it, uh, it brought back that part of the book. And I, I love want, it. Yeah, yes. I wanted to let the less, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to let the listeners know, for those of you who are into planes, this book, because he goes through the uh, the training, because he's been, has, has experience with a lot of different types of aircraft, he goes into great detail. So I think you'll enjoy that very much. So, so war comes, he enlists, he goes into his training. Now we're going to skip a whole bunch of that because I really, <laughs> I really do want to say that for the listeners. And trust me, listeners, this book is just over 350 pages. There's a lot of meat to this book, but, but we're going to skip over that. So he gets to England. He's got his crew. They've been trained up. Can you give us an idea of some of the men that flew with your grandfather and the either the official or unofficial name of their plane was the Bastards Bungalow, which I thought was great. I tried to name my car that, but my kids wouldn't let me. But anyway, oh, if you, love yeah, it. If love you could it. talk to them for me. But, but but who were some of the gentlemen that he is going to end up flying with? Yeah. So look, my grandfather, you know, becomes a navigator. There was this need for navigators. And then, mm. you know, we fast forward and he's uh, assigned to the 418th Bomb Squadron and right. his group, the Bastards Bungalow. It's called Bastards Bungalow because they were a bunch of <laughs> bastards who never knew where they were going next. And that's why they called it that. I love the names of these aircraft. <laughs> Yes. that I've gotten to know over the years. Um, and so a couple, here are some of the guys. So uh, pilot was Charlie Crookshank from right. Massachusetts. You had a co-pilot, Chuck Mertz from Omaha, Nebraska. You're going to see a theme here, guys from all over the country. Bombardier, yeah. Augie, August Gaspar, but they called him Augie, a friend of my grandfather's his whole life from California. Um, wow. The ball turret gunner, Robert Bixler from Bisbee, Arizona. Um, mm -hmm. You had the top turret gunner, Leonard Weeks from West Virginia, radio operator, um, Orlando. 
Orlando from Pennsylvania. I mean, the list goes on and on. And he right. flew with this crew for almost a year. Um, and once together, they were transferred to Utah uh, for training as a squadron and a group. Um, and they worked on this, you know, for four to five months, you know, flying in bomb, uh, practicing gunnery, bombing, right. formation, flying. And I mean, like, it's just crazy to think that these young got their kids. They are. It's just a few yeah. months of training, you know, and yes. meanwhile, my grandfather goes through a very truncated training to be a navigator because there was a desperate need for them. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I mean, you're just thrown into this thing. I mean, you guys, there's no GPS. My grandfather was the <laughs> GPS, which going back to his mild mannered temper, thank yeah. goodness he was such a calm, even keeled kind of a person because you need to be that kind of a person to be the navigator, to be able to keep your calm, keep your, keep your cool. Um, yeah. And then, you know, anyway, they, they ended up, you know, switching, switching planes and all that kind of stuff. But their first mission was June, 1943. Um, mm -hmm. And they were based out of Thorpe Abbott's in England. I've been there. I've, I've nice. been to that, to that air force base. It was unbelievable. It's right. a museum today, by the way, you can actually go visit it. Oh, cool. I sort of say I'm jealous, but now that it's a museum, uh, I'm on my way there. Yeah. That would be awesome. It's really, really, really yeah. cool. So the one part, again, you said something that triggered uh, a memory when I was reading the, your, your grandfather's part where he's talking about his training, all of the things they have to learn to be a navigator. I mean, this went on for a couple of pages and I'm like, nope, I'm out because you would not want me. We would end up in the exact opposite direction of where you wanted to go if I was navigator. So again, someone like him with that cool calmness is exactly what they needed. So they're going on their flights. Uh, but of course, a lot of people who's who are listening to this will know that the uh, the bombers at first are going to go through a tough time. The, the, the allied, the British, the Canadian, the Americans and everyone else uh, bomber crews are going to have a hard time because no fighters have the range yet to protect them. So they pretty much have to go over there by themselves. And at, and there's a lot of casualties uh, early on until something can change with this formula. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. first of all, when you listen to my grandmother, who's 93 years old now, 93 mm -hmm. years young, right. and her name's <laughs> Anne. And they mm -hmm. were married for 50 years, right? Love of his life. And, right. um, you know, she, to this day, she calls them suicide missions. And she is still not happy with the government for those daylight bombing raids, which, you know, we were bombing right. at night and then we switched to try to hit the target more accurately. And I think that that's really up for debate. A lot of people say that they had to do it to win the war while others say it didn't really help much um, yeah. and really put our guys in danger. And there were so many, so many casualties. And it really goes back to the title of my grandfather's book, Luck of the Draw. I mean, it really is luck. The day my yes. grandfather's plane was shot down, don't mean to jump ahead, but yeah. two men died that day from his crew. Right. I mean, that's two generations of families, right, that yeah. don't even exist. Exactly. I wouldn't even be here today had things gone slightly different. It's wild right. to me. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Your 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 grandmother is on very solid ground. Uh, I, I think uh, from what I've read, the Americans were a little more impatient than the British. They wanted to jump right into this. No, let's just fly over and start bombing them. You can do that. But as you just pointed out, you're going to pay the price for it. And a lot of these American crews did. Uh, I think I somewhere there was somewhere in the book, like the 100th bomber group lost 45 aircraft and their crews in less than four months of combat. So it's a bloody time to be over there. Yes, they're trying to do something heroic. They're trying to damage the German war machine, but they are paying the ultimate price for this. I mean, I have a picture in my office at mm -hmm. home 
And it makes me so emotional. It's my grandfather right after Regensburg, which is one of the deadliest, um, most intense missions, one of two of the craziest, most dramatic missions that my grandfather was part of. And remember, mm-hmm. my grandfather flew 20 successful missions before he was shot down on his 21st. And Regensburg, you know, my grandfather had said that the enemy fighters were more deadly than the flak. And they sustained a full hour of attack that day. And, you know, my grandfather talked about how there was no uh, friendly fighter escorts for the bombers and how scary it was. And that they ended up diverting and going to northern Africa. Um, And the plane was so badly damaged that they couldn't. They had to land in northern Africa, in, in, in Morocco, and they couldn't even fly it back to England. Um, wow. And so they were there for a few days. And I have a picture of my grandfather with this men uh, in Morocco. They were right. there for uh, three or four days before going back. And it, that that hangs in my office. Um, you know, and there, yeah. there's a lot of things from the war that are in, that are in my office. But it's really unbelievable what they went through. And that's why, you know, look, I can explain it. People can read it, and I want them to read this book. And it's not right. just for somebody that's interested in World War II. Mm-hmm. It really is a page turner at many parts. And my grandfather turns out he's an incredible writer, right? Oh, yes. And he did so much research. I mean, look at the footnotes. This isn't just a diary. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> this is unbelievable. The research that went into this for seven years. Yeah. Um, but I'm so excited for people to see this play out. And I'm so happy Austin Butler is in this because I think it's going to get a lot of people to watch it and to yes. learn about what these young boys did. Like what Tom Hanks said on the cover of my grandfather's book. Like, mm-hmm. how did those young boys do such things? Hey, everyone. Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Right, exactly. But but it would take a young person who's full of life, who's full of, oh, I'm going to live forever kind of attitude, because I can only imagine your grandfather going up 20 times and going, you know what, this could be the day. This could be the, this could be the end of my life right here. But he's got a duty to do. And, and like a, with a lot of soldiers, the most important thing are your mates. You want to take care of your friends. Your friends want to take care of you. So you do this together. But to go up 20 times knowing that that could, that could be it is, is staggering. And you're right, the 21st time uh, his luck runs out, if you will. And, and I'm going to ask you to tell us a li- little bit about that. So he's been there for, I think, somewhere around four months. I can't remember exactly. He's going up. I'm sure he has seen a lot. But then on October 10th, 1943, it's a particular day for him and his plane and his crewmate, his crewmates. Yeah. So from October 4th to October 10th was Black Week. Mm. And 
It ended on October 10th, the day that my grandfather was shot down. So there were 13 bombers sent up this day. And I want you guys to listen to this. 12 were shot down. The only plane to return was Rosie Rosenthal's, who was the pilot of the only airplane that returned to England the day that my grandfather's plane was shot down. Mm -hmm. And guess who's one of my best friends today? Oh, my goodness. His son, Dan Rosenthal. That's incredible. What are the odds? That's incredible. What are the odds? I met him through going to these 100th Bomb Group reunions that I've been going to for years, long before I ever thought I would ever take part in this mission of my own to put my grandfather's book out there like this. Mm -hmm. And to, uh, you know, it was pretty much self-published. It was done with um, a man who had a publishing company and my grandfather wrote the book. He wrote it for the family. And it was like his version of self-publishing, putting the book out, not many copies and, um, you know, I think in his heart, maybe he always wondered what it would have been like to partner with a big publisher and really put this book out there, but he didn't know how to do that. And sure. that really wasn't the point sure. of it. So to be able to now do this and through going to these reunion groups over the years, I've become friends with a lot of great guys. And Dan, uh, who was the president until recently of the 100th Bomb Group Foundation, which is where half the proceeds from the books that are being sold, go, go, mm-hmm. go to that and the mighty okay. Air Force Museum in Savannah. Anyway, I'm really good friends with Dan. So what are the odds that like, I mean, it's just so cool. So many full circle moments, right? Yes. And I've got to meet so many cool people and Rosie is going to be portrayed in the series. So it's really been a neat experience for all of us and all these families to get to know each other. I've gotten to right. know a lot of these families. It's really neat. That, that's cool. And I just have to say real quick before you go on, you mentioned that one, the actor, my daughter has heard that he was going to be at it and they're like, daddy, can we come with you to the movie theater or you know, watch it on the TV? I'm like, yes, yes, you can. Because I know you're just going to be looking at him, but that's fine. You're still going to learn something. And that makes me happy. It's going to bring a lot of people to it. I mean, look, he's done, yes. he did so well in Elvis. He might win an Oscar in March. Right. Right. I think it's going to only make things so much, so much better. But yeah, so my grandfather, um, he first time using a parachute. Um, he he was firing, (laughs) he was firing a machine gun in the nose of the airplane Mm -hmm. when a cannon shell went off behind him and he got shrapnel in his shoulder. He still had it to the day he died, would always set off like alarms at the airport. Um, you know, went on to get the purple heart, right. And the air medal, uh, prisoner of war medal. Um, and then he jumped out of the airplane, took him about 20 minutes to hit the ground. He checked his watch. Um, and then he, uh, landed in a German farmer's field. Mm -hmm. Fast forward decades later, he goes back to that farm and becomes friends with the people whose farm house backyard he landed in. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, Two women, you know, brought him some water, clean, cleaned him up, but they had to turn him over to the local police. Um, right. And he was just happy to be alive. Um, yeah. Now, you know, they were yelling at my grandfather. They didn't physically abuse him, uh, mm-hmm. but they did. Um, you know, he he had a sprained ankle uh, and, and uh, you know, other issues. Right. And then they ended up, you know taking him away. And he was a prisoner of war for the next 18 months. His family didn't know what had happened to him. They didn't know if he was dead or alive. They knew he was missing in action. And his father, my grandmother loves to say, his dad called the White House every day, telling the press, you know, I want it, leaving messages for the president. I guess back then you could do that. And so he was calling and calling and they have finally located my grandfather and let them know that, you know, he was, um, he was a prisoner of war uh, in Stalag Luft 3. Yeah, 
That that's incredible. I mean, so there's amount of time where they don't know his his fate. They uh, being human, they probably can't help but assume the worst. And then to get that news is so mixed. Yes, he's alive, but he's also a prisoner of war. And you know, I imagine their their imaginations would run amok afresh just knowing that he's under the tender mercies of the Nazis. I mean, you know, I, it's so interesting because in the first part of his time as a prisoner of war, you know, mm-hmm. he was uh, in the South compound of Stalag Luft three. It had just opened. Um, right. He writes in the book about how he was surprised at how new it all was. Um, it was austere, but adequate, um, but it was overcrowded. Uh, he lost some weight that first year. Um, they were uh, were receiving packages from the Red Cross. Uh, he joined the band. Uh, right. it, remember, he loved music. Uh, he yeah. writes about how music saved his life. Um, but they weren't ever getting enough clothing. They weren't getting new clothes. They were never getting really enough rations. Um, and, you know, they were never given enough coal. They were always cold. Um, and so, you know, it was a really tough time. Um, right. and, and like I said, he passed time by, by playing in the POW, uh, band in the camp. So he played the clarinet and the saxophone at Emory university and he did the same, um, at camp. And then they built their own theater in there. They had a glee wow. club, they performed concerts and plays there. I mean, you might not think that this is really happening, but this, this really is, um, is happening. So, um, and then he also writes in there, which I think is really interesting not to give too much away. He writes about Mm -hmm. how there were electricians and engineers and architects, right? I mean, these are smart guys alongside him and they start digging tunnels because they're trying to maybe get out of there. But then he was in the same prison camp as the great escape that took place. I mean, all know how that ended. So thank God they never tunneled out. Exactly. Yeah. When I got to that part of the book, I was like, Okay, so so the conditions aren't great, but but they're bearable. But like you said, I mean, they're cold. They're not getting enough food. He's losing weight, which adds to uh, fatigue and chills and things like that. But the Germans were smart enough to to know, hey, we have to give them something to focus on or they might cause trouble for us. You combine that with the Red Cross. And, yeah, there's going to be musical instruments. There's going to be various ways for them to try to distract themselves from the hell that they're going through. And all the while, you know, Germany is still being bombed. Uh, night and day at, at this point. So he's having a hard time, but he, he does find a way to have something else to focus on. And yet it's not over with. In fact, it's about to get a lot worse because they're going to be moved from this camp to another. And that is a story in and of itself. Could you share some of that with us, please? Yeah. Oh, I don't know why you just made me want to cry. That's never <laughs> happened before. Okay. <laughs> I so, cried when I read this part of the book, so it's only fair. No, no I'm just joking. But no, it wasn't. It was that visceral. It was that intense when I got so to that part it, of the book. It was the winter yeah. of 1944, um, mm-hmm. and conditions were slowly uh, worsening. And right. um, it was January 27th, 1945. So, you know, it was the winter of 44, but now it's like early 1945. Mm-hmm. And they were forced to evacuate the advancing Russian armies. And they were given an hour to prepare. Right. Um, they were grabbed their things frantically. My grandfather carried only the things that he could carry, keep him warm. Mm-hmm. And they started 
started out um, marching in the snow and they were only given a few minutes of rest every hour. Um, and they would march all night until five in the morning. Um, they were given an hour's break. They were kept outside um, and people started dropping off. And he yeah. writes about how people were giving up and they just wanted to die and how they would beg with each other not to give up and carry each other. I mean, mm-hmm. there are some photos from, from this. Um, and it was just a, it was it was unbelievable. Um, they right. were actually locked and put into boxcars uh, that were designed to hold 40 men at one point, and they had about 70 men in them. Um, and they were put in these boxcars for the next two to three, two days and three nights where they ended up at Mooseburg, and that was a new prison camp called Stalag uh, 7A. And the conditions there were deplorable. And if you compared it to what he had been in, it looked like a country club, the prison wow. camp that he had been in. So if you can imagine that. Um, a fun fact, if you guys go on my Instagram or you want to follow me on social, I also wrote about it for USA Today. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one of the shoes that my grandfather wore on this march in the wow. snow. He traded his leather soles yeah. with um, another soldier who had these like wooden clogs. And maybe because leather is a commodity, maybe they could trade it. But my grandfather traded his wet soles, got these wooden clogs. They look like boats. I don't know how you could wear them. <laughs> I have one of them. I still have it. And so it's the one thing that I, I've like refused to give to any museum. Right. It's like a small piece of him. Um, everything else everybody can see either in Thorpe Abbott's of things he gave um, mm-hmm. or the museum in Savannah. Right. Uh, did I read somewhere that your grandmother jokingly said she used it as a planner in one of the homes? I'm like, oh, the, yeah, the- <laughs> I know, which goes to show you like how crazy this all is, right? Like I take all of this so seriously, but right. grandpa came back from the war. He never talked about it. My right. He had four kids. He had a wife. My grandmother telling me just the other week that she didn't even know grandpa had been a prisoner of war. It was his oh. parents that told her. Right. He didn't talk about it. I don't know if that's some post-traumatic stress. I'll never know because I wasn't talking about those things as a teenager and a uh, 20-something-year-old with my grandfather. I was interested in the war, but those weren't the things that we were talking about. Um, right. And so I'm writing about that actually for CNN about post-traumatic stress and 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 maybe what that looked like for the greatest generation. Uh, and. Right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, my my mom and her siblings growing up, they didn't really know much of anything about it. Yeah, so one of those shoes was used as a planter and no one knows what happened to the other one. So there we go. <laughs> as, as long as you've got one, that you're fine. I, I, I've done a lot of interviews over the years and, and I get the, a lot of the same story. People will be like, yeah, he came home, he never talked about it. And then maybe either a friend calls or something happens that, that just, it hits a switch or it starts them thinking about it and suddenly... Um, this stuff starts coming out. I, I did want to ask you, so was it, I guess it was later in life that he decided to uh, to write his book or has it been around for a while and it's just being republished now? I'm, I'm not sure of the timeline. Yes. Yeah, so my grandfather, after he retired, but well after he retired, my grandfather started writing the book in his um, mid 70s, maybe right. early 70s. But like mid 70s. Um, and so this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and he published the book in 2001. And then he died about four years later, four or five mm. years later. Um, So it's been 20 years since the book first came out. But again, because of the way he published it, he self-published it essentially with this 
friend of his from the 8th Air Force, somebody he met later in life. He didn't know this man during the war. And mm -hmm. he was a publisher and he published food and nutrition books. And so he's like, well, I can I can print these up for you and do, right. do this with you. And they did a small run and he spoke at some, you know, he spoke at the 100th Bomb Group reunions and things like that. But it was meant to be for his family and sure. his grandchildren, his seven grandkids and their families and to, you know, immortalize it, memorialize it. So then, you know, fast forward for me, I'm I'm on the board of directors for the Mighty 8th Air Force Museum. I'm going to these reunions. I got mm -hmm. to know Don Miller. And then I'm getting to meet, you know, the people from Playtone and Amblin and at these reunions. And I'm right. starting to say to myself, gosh, I want I wish that if somebody wants to read the book that they can, because they can't. It's out of print. Like right. I want to, I, I, how do I do that? Well, there you go. It's been, how do you do that? Well, I can tell you it took years to do it and it was not easy. And this book was written on a typewriter. We had to, we had to literally get this digitized. I had to go wow. find every photo that he yeah. had in the book. I mean, it's been a scavenger hunt. Mm -hmm. um, it's been really, it's not easy, but right. I'm really excited. And I think he would be so proud that this is happening. And Tom Hanks having a quote on the cover, he'd, yeah. he'd faint. He would yeah. faint. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, it, it could not get any better. So so I, I'm glad you told us that because that, that's a real, you know, it just makes you feel better. And if I had to say, I think more people are going to read it this time than the first time it was published. I, I think he's going to be, he's going to be happy. Um, but another happy day for him was April 29th. 1945. He's in the camp and something big happens. Can you kind of share that part of his life with us, please? Yes, I will. And I, and I just want to say yeah. that during this time though, it mm -hmm. was a really difficult time for him. Right. Um, like this, this was an overcrowded prison camp designed to hold 12,000. Uh, you know, there've been different calculations, but over a hundred thousand prisoners were there. There's German bread. There's, you know, there's no good food. There's no more Red Cross parcels. There's no more band. The yes. beds and everything are infested with fleas, bed bugs, lice. When they oh. were liberated, which is right. what you're talking about, he had pneumonia. He was like skin and bones. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a terribly emotionally difficult time for him. Um, and so uh, the 14th Armored Division came into the vicinity of Mooseburg on the night of April 28th that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the senior British and American officers together with the Red Cross um, and the commandment of the prison camp, they went out and they met the Allies under a truce flag. And mm -hmm. the Germans, they wanted to negotiate the surrender of the camp, but the American forces nearby demanded, you know, the unconditional surrender of the camp by 9 a.m. the following morning on April 29th. And so... Um, the German area commander refused, and the next day, the Americans did begin to attack. And right. then the POWs listened, uh, you know, at the, all of a sudden, at, you know, it dawned on them what was going on, and there was this gun battle nearby. Mm -hmm. um, and it was unbelievable. My grandfather, um, you know, 
heat, not exactly sure what's going on. Um, but then after a day or two, an American army unit showed up with some food and then Patton came and he crashes down, you know, in his tank and he crashes down the gates. General Patton, I mean, yes. with his like famous like revolvers, and <laughs> it's this it's it's like again, it's something out of a movie. How exactly? How amazing is this? And um, General Patton came up to you know different POWs that day, and uh, he came up to my grandfather. A group of men were standing there, and he and he looked at how terrible they looked, and he said, "I'm going to kill these sons of bitches for this." Right. And my grandfather used to tell that story, and he never <laughs> cursed, you know. <laughs> Isn't that, that crazy? It's so <laughs> wild. And these stories are oh it's just it's it's crazy that this was real life because my grandfather ends up going back and you know going back to Emory and kind of pocketing this away in his mind and in in his memories. And then right. he goes on to finish school and eventually meets my grandmother. Then he goes back to school and becomes a lawyer, mm-hmm. right? And then he has this whole other life where he actually continues to work with planes for the rest of his life, working for Lockheed, Lockheed, Georgia, which is you know Lockheed Martin now. Yeah. Um, and so he he, you know, you would never know that my grandfather had this like crazy experience. In his right. early twenties, you know, yeah. it's it's like something crazy and life changing happens to you at a really young age, and then it's over with, and then somehow you have to find a way to live the rest of your life, even though you experienced this this thing that had amazing highs and low lows. I mean, so like a lot of people, he's got to readjust uh, when he gets back. It sounds like he did a pretty good job. He was focused on, you know, trying to, to better himself, get a degree, start a family. So it sounds like he made that transition, but like you hinted at another views and like he wrote in his book, I mean, there were memories uh, and there, there were his friends that he had, he had remembered. Cause like you said, I think at least two of them died the day his plane went down. So this is an incredible story. And like I said, it's over 350 pages. The details are amazing. And Chloe, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this and I'm glad your father's book, your grandfather's book is out in print because it, it was a joy to read. And I'm going to let you have the last word. But again, that one line that he says, uh, I think near the end of it, when he when he said something about he's walking with ghosts for the rest of his life. Can you give us an idea of what you think he meant by that? Yeah, you know, I think that, first of all, he wrote the book, not just to tell his story to his kids and his mm-hmm. grandkids and he did it for them. He wanted to honor his fellow servicemen. And that's why he he wrote this book. And I think that it goes back to the title that I think there's some survivor's guilt, right? Like you yes. fought for your country, but yes. you're looking back with pride, but you're walking with these ghosts of these men that didn't make it. Why me? Why do I get to live? And exactly. other don't. And I think that that's, that's what it's all about. You know, we all have a lot of crap going on in our lives. Right. But I think that a book like this puts things into perspective Mm -hmm. and you choose your heart. And these men, so many of them persevered and they went up every single day, whether it's because they were naive or just because they were young, but they fought for us every single day. And these were some really tough circumstances. So I think that when you read this, we've all been through a hell of a lot with the pandemic. We all have a lot of, we all have a lot of things going on in our lives, but if you read this book, I think it's going to make you feel pride for your country. Mm -hmm. We need that right now. And we help you find some resilience inside yourself. I think that's what it's all about. You know, this book is for everybody. It's it's not a quick read, but this book really is for everybody, you know? 
Oh yeah, no, it's it's like if uh, for and I'm and I'm kind of you know tongue in cheek here, but it's, if it's like someone along the lines of Forrest Gump sat down and wrote his. I mean, this guy had so many different phases to his life. Um, your grandfather, he just first he's just an innocent kid, and then he's training, and then he's in war, and then he's a prisoner of war, and then he gets out of the war, and then he's a family man and a lawyer, and and he just had so many different stages of his life. But you're absolutely right. People just need to persevere and move on, and ask yourself. What's next? And it sounds like Mr. Murphy said a lot to himself. Okay, what's next? So again, and I just want to let you know that I've already purchased the uh, the audiobook. I am so looking forward to hearing that as I as I walk the dog. Uh, and, I read it's, the book. And, yeah. and, and it's yeah. it, it's narrated by Jonas Moore. That was my idea. I will take right. that. And Jonas <laughs> Moore is the actor who plays my grandfather in Masters of the Air, a British oh, actor who does a great right. southern accent. And yeah, so I think that, look, this is a great way to kind of get your feet wet before Masters of the Air comes out. So I Good think that this is a great introduction for people. And then for others, it's a deep dive into one of the characters. Right. Good point. And like I said, there's tons for, for the for the pure historians out there. This has got tons of detail for everyone else. This is just a good read. Like you said, it's a page turner. It's got a little bit of everything in there. Uh, and yeah, I, I burned through this book like in three days. So it was it was that good. So for all my listeners out there, it's Luck of the Draw, My Story of the Air War in Europe by Frank Murphy. Uh, check it out. It's going to, it's going to be great. I can't wait to see the series. I can't wait to hear the, uh, the audiobook as well, especially with, uh, him, him doing the reading. Chloe, thank you very much for your time today and for sharing with us your experiences about this book. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it, Ray. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.